Casey here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to the next episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, the show where we get Greybeard storage bloggers to talk with system vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. This Greybeards on Storage episode is recorded on February 3rd, 2020. We have with us here today, A.B. Parasani, CEO of MinIO. So, A.B., why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what's uh, what's new with MinIO? Hello, everyone. Um, this is A.B., A.B. Periasami, and uh, I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of MinIO. And uh, MinIO is an object storage. It's exactly like Amazon S3, API compatible with Amazon S3. And the primary purpose behind MinIO is the world is going to produce amazing amount of data and uh, bulk of the data is going to be outside of Amazon AWS. And if you are inside AWS, you have Amazon S3, you know what, if you are outside AWS. And that's where Minivo was born. And uh, it's an object storage that you can run on any bare metal VM containers, pretty much anywhere. It's really easy to do. Uh, and uh, it, it gives you a complete end-to-end object storage stack. We were uh, we were at Storage Field Day, or at least I was at Storage Field Day 19 here a week or so ago, and we talked with uh, MinIO there, and I was pretty impressed with the 100% open source version. This is actually all open source, right? Yeah, it is 100% open source. So I would like to call it free software, and you know the difference, right? Yeah, there is difference there. So S3 compatible, I mean, a lot of companies uh, say they're S3 compatible. I mean, how do you verify something like that? The easiest way to verify is to run your applications, right? Because end of the day, I think standards and compatibility, it doesn't matter on paper. What matters is, it does it work? And uh, like often uh, we have heard uh, from uh, yeah few of the product guys outside of our company that why don't you talk about uh, like all these great teachers you have and we often tell them that it doesn't matter right there's only one thing that matters that it just works and you would hear that very commonly across our community and you would know that why that it just works it also means that it is simple right end of the day if it doesn't work everything else is up for debate right now the s3 compatibility itself Amazon published a REST spec, but there are many interpretations of it. And when I say interpretations, their own SDKs interpret uh, the uh, S3 spec differently and different versions of the same, say, Java SDK would have different implementations, right? And Amazon service is very forgiving uh, because they have made incremental changes continuously over many years and they have accommodated all those changes. How do you get this right? The only way you can get this right is you do only one thing. And we stuck with S3 API and we always told no to any other like Swift API or anything else, and no file API. We will do one thing and one thing really well. And this is where we even went to the extent of writing the client and SDKs. Because if you see, no other object storage actually has clients and SDKs because they thought it will just use AWS SDK. Minivo actually works with the AWS SDKs as well. Really? Isn't that kind of unusual to actually work with the interface provider's SDK? I mean... Yeah, it, that's how we, we test our code and we test our SDKs with Amazon server. And and the, we, the, here the important detail is this, right? The uh, Amazon, because of the variations of their implementations, the only way you can get it right is you have to have an amazing amount of installed base and that's where the open source comes in to help us if we break something we actually will hear within 30 minutes from our community new github issues being raised and we will go fix it 
actually we have we have seen multiple occasions that uh, amazon when they roll out new updates they break uh, to all software has bugs right and our uh, there are a whole bunch of applications using our sdks to talk to amazon and amazon would actually go ahead and fix those their versions too uh, to be compatible with our sdk so overall the best way to get this is to uh, get the compatibility is show that it's working wait 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 ab i'm so you're all right you've got an sdk amazon's got an sdk and there are people using your SDK to talk to Amazon S3 storage. Yeah. And if Amazon S3 storage rolls out a function functional enhancement that breaks your SDK, yeah. They fix it? You would be surprised, right? Actually, I was surprised too. That's you know, that actually I, I have a tremendous respect for Amazon. Like you would actually hear this commonly, right? Not just that like it's a surprise of whether Amazon will fix it, even in terms of they being nice to us. I have heard like their VP R&D saying that he personally likes Minio, right? From We have seen like on multiple occasions how nice they were. There were times where community would ask that what if Amazon comes after us from S3 API uh, uh, any, uh, in, yeah, like because of the Google Oracle case, right? They have actually always volunteered. Their, their guys would come in and say that they are actually willing to work with the community and uh, it's they, it shows how bold and how confident they are. And also they have been nice to us and the community overall. When you reason with them, they're just the companies, AWS is run by engineers. If you show them, look, there is a bug in their system. Uh, I, and here is, uh, they, it, they don't question about MinIO SDK is their competitor. They don't even see us as a competition, uh, maybe because we are small or we are in a different zone, but they have been very nice and very reasonable, not only about us, right? delight the customer that's how they see it it's more than pleasing us or anything they have always been right to their community and that's how issues get fixed and we move forward i, I think from 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 their perspective any data in s3 is is good data from their perspective whether it's their their s3 or not you know i, I because it's more applications using the interface it's more users using that storage and and you know over time if 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 they want to use the cloud they can use the cloud if not they can use minio it works for them. Yeah. Like their Snowball, for example, like our community actually likes our tools to deal with Snowball because uh, you want to be often able to move up data between two object storage systems. Their tools won't be able to do that. And uh, and they actually, uh, we have seen on a number of occasions that they have been very nice to the community. And to so so Snowball is there, you know, it's, it's like a, it's effectively an external drive or something like that that you can use to load up data into S3? Yeah. Like if you want to move data into S3 or move data out of S3, right? And uh, the problem is that your internet bandwidth is limited. The best bandwidth you can get, don't ask about latency, the best bandwidth is FedEx uh, or uh, UPS. Uh, they, they actually load up all your data in a box. It's really a portable to you server type, right? Like actually it's not to you, it's, it's a slightly different form factor. Uh, it's a tower model, right? You just, they ship the box to you and then it actually looks like an S3 compatible object storage with some variations. So we all we have to do is make our tool recognize those variations. So it looks like a proper object storage. And now you can move the data in and out of the box. So essentially, it's a very portable way to move data from from edge where the data is getting generated or your enterprise data center. Yeah, I've, I've done a few snowballs, or at least I've supported the ingesting of snowballs 
So basically, it's, it is basically either a, I think there's a USB interface and there's a, a 10 gigabit interface on the device itself. I'm correct with that, right, AB? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then it's just, a it's literally an external drive. You copy the data to the external drive. But if you want to use it in a way that you would naturally use your application, it oddly enough doesn't come with an S3 interface. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's well said. It's a giant external drive uh, the size of the server. Yeah, I've done some transfers, bulk transfers in the past to, to Azure and Amazon, but it was pre-Snowball, so I guess I'm dating myself. So there's plenty of functionality here behind S3. I mean, it, A, it's multi-zone replication. B, there's encryption. C, it's, you know, it handles a, a gazillion buckets and and. I don't know, a quintillion uh, objects per bucket. I mean, does MinIO handle all this stuff? Yep. You know, the, it's actually, it's it, when you say it like that, it sounds monumental, right? It is monumental. <laughs> but if you go into the data center, if you see how they actually are, it's not only Amazon, it's not only, uh, like it's Google, like Facebook, everywhere you look around, how do they really build giant systems? The, the, you will find one common pattern between MinIO and them. They actually don't build giant systems. They build many smaller systems where each system, if when you say small, it's not necessarily small, but it's actually the size of a failure domain that you can handle and tolerate. So essentially, they are building lots of smaller systems endlessly. So your thousandth cluster deployment is just no different from your very first cluster. It's just many separate clusters. You turn your scalability into a provisioning problem. Provisioning is much well, much better understood and easy to handle than you making your algorithms and data structures handle uh, trillions and trillions of changes at a given time. That's the old school enterprise thinking. So, so the. Um... You mentioned the fact that you can handle clusters and, and failure domains and stuff like that. Is a failure domain something like a rack? Would that be a failure domain? So it, it depends between customer to customer. Uh, we have seen in the financial space, they want to keep failure domain across four to six racks so they can do cross-rack erasure. So a total rack can go down. In some cases, now I'm seeing they actually want... Uh, erasure code across data centers too. So a total rack data center can go down. But in general, we find that um, a, a rack is actually a good unit. So uh, you have a switch at the top of the rack and many nodes can fail inside the rack. Uh, uh, you choose the parity erasure code parity accordingly. But that way, you, when you, whenever you want to scale, you no longer look at like adding one drive or one JBOD unit those days are gone, you always add in sets of servers. Those are simply like failure domain. So can we combine two concepts? One is the AWS API, and then this idea of failure domains. One of a common challenge that I'll see is that people want a want the power of S3 storage on-prem from a replication perspective, because S3 is a great protocol for data replication in general. Are you guys seeing use cases where they're using MinIO to basically uh, extend or create a different failure domain, but that failure domain is basically on-prem and out of the AWS data center? So it, that's what I would, I, I actually assumed that, uh, but it didn't exactly happen like that. What I initially thought was maybe they, like there are customers who would uh, keep one leg on 
on public cloud one leg on private cloud and mirror ah, right mirror yeah, between yeah. both so they, so they always have everything safe but in reality right people actually are fairly confident about aws not losing your data so they really don't once you go to public cloud you don't really think about making a copy of aws like literally backing up a dr for aws s3 is on prem that sounds ridiculous for many uh, many of the users and i would actually agree with that right because aws s3 is pretty rock solid the reason that what they uh, they actually come to minio is quite different they uh, they there are two types i see one they don't come out they actually like s3 uh, they stay there but then they actually put minio s3 caching gateway they actually have an edge uh, caching store storage the same server it's actually the same product instead of using built in erasure code you can point to a remote storage and the remote storage could be s3 or azure blob wait 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 so you've got not only do you have a, a, a an open source s3 storage solution but now you also have a caching solution for not only s3 storage but blob is azure blob yeah actually yeah it's not there are actually like two dozen adapters out there floating around uh, we, like i i will come to this and we can talk more about the gateway uh, but the the other like a there are minio can act like a gateway to non s3 compatible storage or even just amazon s3 itself the, the primary reason that, like people use us in front of the public cloud is act as a cache like a edge cache at the private cloud that way you are you are not, like bulk of your dollars spent on aws like for these guys when they are outside when the application is outside the public cloud they actually spend on bandwidth not storage and in between acting like a caching storage at the edge makes it faster and makes it cheaper that's one use case right the other use case i'm finding is they, when they decide when they decide to come to minio they actually come out of amazon s3 they see that at beyond like few petabytes it becomes expensive it's like staying in a hotel for a long time and that's when they take minio go to a colo or go to uh, some leased data center and they uh, they want to keep control over the data and the software stack you talking you talking a few petabytes is as like it's 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 nothing it here. is yeah, actually that's that's the case that's what you're finding i i was surprised i thought maybe like when they become when when they grow 10 petabyte plus right i i was surprised to see startups coming out of amazon to minio I'm like why would you do that for you time is the most precious commodity you want to go focus on productivity right but they always say that some for a startup spending even a 50k 100k a month a quarter like for them more expensive than a big company so this is pretty simple concept that you know i ran into a bit in my desire to support kind of like uh pharmaceuticals and people researching big extremely large data sets when you're sharing data across organizations and you want the same data set ingesting that data into a new platform is the largest expense i mean i i've i've spent millions of dollars of companies money you know doing connectivity to either i2 or to uh, 10 gigabit direct connects etc to solve this problem of one uh bandwidth latency obviously is a, a different issue with the snowballs but the other option is is this cost of ingesting these data across 
across platforms that are best suited for the type of analytics work you want to go, go against. So a couple of petabytes of data is literally nothing uh, because we're transferring that kind of data via Snowball. The problem is constantly ingesting and sharing that data across organizations. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I always thought that, that Amazon S3, you know, getting the data in was free, but getting the data out was costly. But then even getting the data in, there's a, there's a bandwidth cost there, I guess, right? Well, uh, there's a bandwidth cost when it comes to time. If I want that data in, like, tomorrow, getting a snowball three days from now, uh, getting my network guys to provision it, blah, 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 two weeks later, it's there. And the fun part there is, right, like, a, a, you, you, we would think that, like, how can you possibly ingest all that data into the cloud? And what you find is that uh, it, 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 in most cases, is even slower because for them to buy a hardware appliance, set it up, uh, and going through the process, most of the most of the times, these are applications team or shadow IT team. They actually don't want to ask someone and go through the procurement and uh, all the, uh, the whole process. They just go to public cloud for productivity reasons. Uh, and uh, that's a bigger problem than even ingest, but it always starts small. It's not like one day they wake up and say, I want to ingest now two petabyte to public cloud. They start with 100 terabytes or so, and, and then that starts to snowball, literally. Well, it literally doesn't even start with 100 terabytes. It could be just a terabyte of data. And uh, it, it just, before you know it, the work gets around that, hey, you know what, I was able to answer this question way quicker than I could going through IT. and people it becomes you know the 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 next factor up of file sharing yeah and the other thing you mentioned at the at the storage field day was that people are using minio in amazon it's it's bizarre it is bizarre and i still don't recommend it right and people do it when you are open source you can't control all you can tell is advise them that why they are losing money doing that putting us on top of ebs ebs is three times more expensive than s3 a, some of them are just uh, like it came with GitLab, it came with what one of their application stack that uh, bundled uh, or the other one they say it's multi-cloud portability but I think uh, I think the bigger reason is convenience uh, beats security cost everything else in the end uh, I try I still try to educate them that go use s3 yeah you can't you can't fix a process issue if I'm conditioned to manage block storage in my operations to set up a block and this application needs object is literally easier or less expensive from an operations perspective to front end it with MinIO than it is to change my operating model to support su supporting object. So, so yeah, back to the, to the functionality perspective, A, does uh, MinIO support, you know, object encryption? Yes. In fact, like we had to support even stronger encryption than what Amazon published because uh, most of our deployments are growing in the enterprise space and, and the customers tend to, the early adopters came from the financial institutions and they, for them, they have to be paranoid about uh, security and encryption. And they came to MinIO because of those reasons, the, the private cloud, right? And uh, we actually not only did the same, like Amazon, like Amazon's, uh, that AES-256 uh, uh, class algorithm, we also added Chacha 20 Poly 1305, which also gave a tamper-proofing capability. Uh, and we actually went full scale on encryption. And the key here is, right, whenever any security mechanism you put in place, if it actually causes friction, 
they are not going to adopt it right any any time it is harder slower there it security again is a second thought when it be, when it becomes harder that's where we went to great lengths to improve the speed you can do inline encryption uh, 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 at high speed and still choke a 100 gigabit ethernet switch and without any ssl accelerators or like some add-on gpus standard xeon cpus are just what you need to do high speed inline encryption and every object is independently encrypted with a separate key and you support like keymap things and that sort of thing Actually, there like key, uh, that uh, key map, like uh, we support Vault, and then uh, the standard ones. Even you could use even Amazon uh, key map to uh, uh, bootstrap the system. But here is the thing, right? We here we didn't stop just supporting uh, key map. The problem is that every single object coming in, if we have to make a request to a, a, a Vault or something for KMS. Uh, for each and every object to get a new key, the, the, the at the speed at which we are uh, taking in objects, they, in, in no key, KMS can handle the load. We actually wrote our own uh, KMS uh, bridge. It actually acts like a stateless distributed key, key management service, and uh, it can handle very high load. But that system simply is simply bootstraps itself with an external corporate controlled or a public cloud key. Talking about performance too, but but before we get to that place, um, replication. So you could replicate objects across failure domains. We uh, we so the so the so there is erasure code within the failure domain, and then there is replication across failure domain. There are two types of replication. Uh, one uh, the one that everybody is using today is uh, is basically a tool called MC Mirror. And mirror is like rsync, but it's built for large scale and continuous. So you just start it. Probably the, most of the time they run it like a container, uh, and it can mirror between object storage and file system, or object storage and object storage. It even works between two file systems, and it actually subscribes to change notification. In MinIO, we support a, a Lambda compute notification. Like in file system, they have something like iNotify. It looks for these changes, and that's how it knows to keep two, side, two or more sites in sync. That's what everybody is using today. We are going to we 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 are actually pretty close uh, to uh, releasing a, a new product that's also open source. It's called Radio, and Radio can keep uh, can keep multiple sites uh, uh, with synchronous replication or synchro uh, synchronous erasure code across data centers. Wait, wait, synchronous, synchronous, synchronous means that I don't even copy an object. I can't. I can't tell that the object has been stored until it's actually stored in both locations, right? Correct. That is exactly right. Radio? Yeah. Is that what it's called? It is called radio. Uh, it's a, a, I, we, we look for a lot of names, but it's just, a, it, 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 there, is, there is an explanation written about radio on the site. It's called redundant array of independent distributed object store, but that's just for fun. It is, a, <laughs> you need a simple name and uh, also radio feels like like how the, all the receivers receive at the same time. So it's kind of a nice uh, uh, theme to it. Maybe one of the things that I can't uh, quite wrap my hands around, head around is this concept of uh, compatibility and people using MinIO inside of uh, AWS. I get that. But you keyed on an idea or concept that I can't see how you guys can get around, which is 
AWS alerting. So when I can, when I write an object to uh, S3, I can trigger Lambda. I can create an event and trigger Lambda. How are customers go, getting kind of around that inability to do S3, uh, traditional AWS triggers to trigger stuff like Lambda, et cetera? Yeah, good point. So let's talk about details, right? So first, starting, like, I'll go into this Lambda specifically, but start starting from the S3 API itself, most people don't know, we were the first to implement S3 v4 API, right? Everybody else copied our code uh, or copied our product itself. And uh, before us, there was like, occasionally they will talk about S3 API. It's really a, a partial S3 v2. Some They will have some get object, put object. Mostly people supported Swift. We saw that Amazon will uh, convince the rest of the industry to adopt S3. So we didn't, uh, we knew that that's the, that's the API to get, get it right. But we went to great length that things like from Lambda Compute to S3 Select, like SQL API for object storage, end to end, we have all these implementations. Anything that we did not do is because like Amazon got it wrong. And like, say, for example, bucket policies, uh, Amazon also introduced ACLs. We knew that it was redundant and wrongly done, but eventually Amazon deprecated it. Now let's talk about the uh, Lambda Compute notification. We saw that that was very powerful. In fact, before Amazon introduced, we actually had a different implementation because we had our own reasons. Customers kept asking that they needed some kind of notification. Later on, between Amazon and us, we exchanged the product guys. We actually exchanged notes, and we have a very similar story of why S3, why the Lambda Compute notification was born and how it was born. But let's talk here details. Amazon actually sends the notification through Amazon SNS or SQS, like the notification service or a queuing service. But then if we, we are in the private cloud and we can't write to Amazon SNS SQS, for us to be compatible, it has to be exactly like Amazon, but we have to deliver the notification to what? And this is where in the private cloud, customers actually use Kafka, like con from Confluent, like AMQP, you know, there are, I was surprised that like community, one of the community member wrote MQTT, the IoT uh, pro e uh, pro protocol equivalent, like, uh, uh, like AMQP, but used in the IoT world. But I actually seen that, that MQTT, we are paying customers using this in medical space. We actually support a whole bunch of these message delivery systems, as well as like even webhook, you know, if we can even store these events in a database. So you can say query, show me all the check deposited in this ATM center or this region from this time to this time. We can store these events in a database or send it through like a notification systems like Kafka. We have a more sophisticated, uh, more flexible implementation than even what Amazon has, but it looks exactly like Amazon. You use Amazon SDK to trigger these notifications and you would just be fine. So the, I, I get the same functionality practically, and then I can implement something like an open FAS on my side to take advantage of you know, some of the same types of serverless functions that I look for on Lambda. Yeah, actually, uh, Goody brought open fast. They actually did a pretty nice job of uh, turning your Kubernetes environment with MinIO uh, and uh, like application containers. Actually, I, I see that a whole bunch of code can be written as just Lambda functions and open fast made it really easy by integrating MinIO's uh, notification mechanism. Uh, and from application developer's point of view, you shouldn't be 
building the infrastructure, you should be writing useful application code. And uh, OpenFast actually receives these webhook notifications. Uh, we work with the project from early on, and we have actually a lot of people using it. So, yeah, so Lambda is there, replication is there, encryption is there. Um, and in erasure, you mentioned erasure code. So within a failure domain, um, is it like, what's the erasure code level? Is it a, a two-node failure or two-device failure? So when we started, uh, we sounded radical uh, and uh, and almost like they didn't. Uh, it it was a little hard to digest for many. Uh, we used erasure code until like we started doing it. Everybody else was like doing erasure code offline, right? So we were the first to do inline erasure code at high speed. But then the thing was not about inline erasure code or bitrod. The thing was that how like we we actually the default till today the default erasure code is n by two data and parity. Meaning, say if you have sixteen servers, you could lose eight servers and you wouldn't have lost data. All like eight servers, all the drives in it, right? And uh, that is very high redundancy. My point was, look, everybody else is doing replication three times or more, and this is even with even with this level of redundancy, you are only talking about two copies equivalent. And it to me, people time is more valuable than server cost or drive cost. And you deploy these machines, forget it, don't go to troubleshoot drives and servers. That's why I left that as the default. Initially, it was hard to digest for many. It's just the perception of it, right? They did not realize that the alternative was making three copies. They were okay with HDFS or anything else doing copies, three copies, and not okay with just two copies equivalent of erasure code. But now I think everybody understands that. But I would say that for servers that are attended once in a few months, uh, you can actually do 12 data for parity. That means anytime you can lose four servers or four data, uh, four drives, and you won't lose uh, you availability or data. Yeah. Well, I would think 12 plus four would be yeah. more than adequate for most environments. Can you talk a little bit about performance? I mean, you know, the, the one of the challenges to some extent with S3 is that performance is not necessarily a given. It's not It's not very predictable. It depends on the load on, on Amazon, that sort of stuff. Does that correct understanding? Maybe I should start there. So for the most part, that's actually false, right? AWS is actually fast. It was a perception created by the enterprise storage vendors who added an object storage play, and they simply took the traditional content addressable uh, storage or some kind of archival storage, and because they were slow, they simply positioned object storage as for archival, and somehow the industry bought that idea because the enterprise IT school, they were basically backing up to the public cloud. So the perception was it object storage is meant for archival, but that's not true at all. If you are inside AWS, if you talk to the AWS customers, they know, like Snowflake, Imagine building a product like Snowflake on top of a archival product. It would not work, right? So what is Snowflake? I mean, we start there. Snowflake is essentially a data warehouse play. Uh, Amazon has an equivalent like Redshift. Uh, it's basically SQL on top of unstructured data stored on Amazon S3 in a disaggregated storage and compute play. 
the traditionally databases handled uh, the in the storage all by themselves and they relied on sand like systems right but it did not scale because databases were good at querying and indexing the data but not at storage this is where they realized that by disaggregating storage and compute they can become stateless they can scale elastically and more resilient uh, but uh, the object storage would deal with petabytes and petabytes of data so snowflake is actually a modern ultra modern implementation of what a modern data warehouse has to look like. Now I see from Teradata to Splunk to everybody caught up with that idea. It's the new trend in the overall data processing world. And so Snowflake is effectively a database using S3 as a backend storage. Yeah, for unstructured data. It's not meant for the like a DB2 SQL Server or Oracle transactional data, but it is meant for analyzing. But SQL and structured and unstructured data don't go together. In my mind, it's 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 uh, it's not oxymoron. It's worse. It's 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 uh, it's in conflict in my mind. SQL means it's structured. That is what I also thought because in the early days, right? So like two, I would say two years before, uh, one of my friend from Intel, probably you know him, Dave Gohan. He was the first to bring it to the notice, and he uh, he was like Intel was working with us closely, and he he came from the financial space. He wanted databases to run on object storage, and I thought that was like nuts, right? Like, I was trying to convince him that object storage. Object yeah, it's crazy, right? Because they, database is all about mutations and uh, and IOPS. It's a latency play. Object storage is all about throughput uh, and bandwidth play, right? It's blob and immutability, and they are really up completely like oil and water. They don't really mix at all. But yeah, and I was arguing with him that I would not make object storage. Yeah, IOPS play, and it would be bad for object storage because it would lose its very strength. And what he argued, he was the first to convince me on this subject. And then I saw within the next two years, the entire industry changed in that direction. And what actually he meant, he was the one to educate me on this subject. He's saying object storage should exactly stay as object storage, what it is good at. What he means is the modern databases would pull the blob to memory and then you do all mutations in memory when you're ready to commit write the table segments back to object storage that's actually a throughput play so the databases will actually store the table segments like extents on the object storage and all mutations are on the client side that makes object that makes the database go even faster and that may, and from there amazon started realizing that but if the table segments are in some uh, a JSON CSV type format, which is actually most of the enterprise bulk data is just CSV JSON for semi-structured or even structured data, then Amazon brought in predicate pushdown where you, the, the database layer can even push the SQL query all the way down to object storage. It made a lot of sense. And uh, we now uh, actually see that as the killer commercial enterprise application world. For object storage. I'm about to go back and listen to this podcast and learn some stuff. It's pretty good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, try, I still try to get my hand uh, understanding around this. So yeah, it's it's like an in-memory database that only gets loaded out or or, or sent or destaged rather to the, the object store when all the mutations are done. It's brought in, it's processed in memory, and then it's and it's destaged. Here is the here's the important point here, right? Why I when I it connected the dots for me. 
the because previously my job was at uh, like building cluster right and cluster was or a file system so i understood these problems and i hate complexity right the complexity is the kill is the one that kills scalability everything the if a product is complex you cannot build a business around it right and the part i hated the most was the posix api and when i saw s3 api amazon like and amazon pushed it i knew that that was the right move technically i could see that amazon like amazon got it right and uh, and i wished amazon should succeed and i knew amazon would succeed right they they removed the friction by actually solving one very fundamental problem in all storage systems this is the heart of the problem that will will explain why finally database guys are understanding this correctly storage systems in the past somehow took an api like posix which was never designed for a network storage even for a block right why would you want to make mutations across the network if we both are changing the data across machines across the network for us to be coordinated and be in sync the storage system has no idea the apis while it look like so rich they are actually quite crude and they don't have the sophistication that is needed and if you want to do it correctly it you have to do all operations across the network synchronously and these are all very chatty small block operations you just cannot solve this problem any sand nas vendor if they claim to be fast they are it's bunch of hacks and it just does not scale at the scale that modern applications need the only way to solve that problem is reduce the functionality the scope of what a storage system should do storage system should only focus on keeping the data durable ultra durable and it scales it keeping it simple is the solution to all of the storage problems and amazon understood this really well and but, but if you keep it simple how do i then do the things i did in the past I, if i have to update the data don't mutate the data on the storage machine that's the heart of the problem if you are willing to rewrite your application meaning you take the data mutate in memory and then when you are ready you know better when the data is ready to be committed well okay so the keys and i am various indexing and all that stuff so you mentioned json and csv so there are some structure solution you know structured on top of this unstructured data mm-hmm. so and, and so they're using let's say csvs and stuff like that and say okay this column is a key one and this column is key two and it's providing a a separate index blob it depends from database to database say like let's take some examples like splunk for example right they actually write that uh, write the indexed full text indexed data they even have like a bloom filter and it's exactly all the uh, all the table segments and the index everything they did the job they did the compute on the hot tier they call it a hot tier but it's essentially a cache and the, and that storage is local drives attached to the splunk worker nodes they they call it the indexers right but once the index is done that the data and the index is actually written as just segments collection of objects to an object store and multiple indexers share it so the data if you look at the splunk backend it actually looks like it's actually a splunk proprietary format but the teradata vantage for example like customers would actually do schema on read which is a lot of customers like that idea they want to capture the data into minio through kafka or fluentd something like that and then they can have teradata or vertica or spark or presto multiple systems can coexist they pull the data from a common repository there they would like to keep the data in a csv json format so so minio 
supports fully supports Snowflake kind of functionality if 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 we were able to run Snowflake on prem today Snowflake is not there on prem but actually I find uh, like a Presto uh, uh, Splunk Vertica Teradata everybody has like native object storage support uh, they have been working with us for a while uh, and there are actually people using it today Okay, so it's it's it, you don't necessarily need to do Snowflake, but you've got capabilities similar to that. And if you actually wanted to use Snowflake in Amazon, you could potentially have a MinIO storage behind it. Yeah, I think that goes back to the expense of using EBS as the back end again. I'm really I'm really intrigued with like you know using this to back end like a Redis or a or something like that where. I'm getting cheap and deep storage on the back end, yeah. but I'm getting the advantages of, of my in-memory as, and I'm using, you know, my persistent layer of RAM or my persistent storage to mitigate kind of not having fast disk on the back end. This, this, I can see from a architect's perspective, this is a fun, fun solution to play around with. Are you actually touched upon an interesting topic that like I actually see that's where the future is headed. Uptain memory type uh, like persistent memory is actually best suited on the client side acting as a cache so they can have giant amount of persistent cache and Redis like APIs can get even simpler now because essentially you have persistent memory. So all the mutations will happen on Uptain memory type which actually it comes very nicely into this modern cloud native architecture. Yeah, it makes sense if you have like petabytes of data and you need to, and it's typically cold, but you want to do a specific uh, analysis against that set, you can uh, load the sets you want off of cold or this near cold storage this object, do it, do it and then not touch the data for another one or two years. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of the, the promised land of, of, in memory databases. This is like Hadoop second generation or something like. It's like third generation Hadoop. So they 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 we were at the SFD nineteen. They were talking about Hadoop is all dead. I said, well, somebody's got to replace it. But this is what's yeah. replacing it. So it's using object storage and an SQL front end. More like Spark and uh, object storage type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are other solutions. You know, we're running out of time here, but there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, and and you, you made mention of oh 20,000 stars on your GitHub. So your open source solution is available as a GitHub yeah. uh, repository, I assume, right? Yeah. So they, what does 20,000 stars mean? I mean, I think I, can, I think I have four stars on one of mine or something like that. There is a there is a there is a way to interpret that, right? The twenty thousand stars by themselves mean nothing, right? The, the important part is that say if I say if I wrote a popular JavaScript library, chances are I actually would get fifty thousand stars, right? Uh, but it's what matters is that twenty thousand stars for an object storage is actually uh, is probably the first time we are seeing this, that object storage is getting the kind of traction beyond IT into the whole application ecosystem itself. And because MinIO is made easier, easier. so just like how in the early days, only like few privileged people can have access to the Unix machines and Windows, like everybody can install and have, run their own web server and application stack. It's happening in the storage industry now, that storage becoming simpler and purely software defined 
S2, an object storage system is much simpler than a database, right? So why, what's wrong with that, like in terms of getting the adoption and combined with Kubernetes type layer, making it easier and easier. So the, the, now back to the GitHub stars, that, that, get that kind of stars for, for an object storage is actually high. And to me, it's not the stars alone that matters. The reason I picked stars is it's it very hard to cheat. It's very hard to fake it. Like Docker, someone can actually repeatedly do pulls, so you can fake that, right? What we see is a general trend of all of the uh, metrics, whether it's Slack members or like number of pull requests to everything is a general, in a general reflection, we see very high number. So I tend to believe that GitHub stars are actually uh, very real for us. But I also see it's not the GitHub stars itself I care, it's the rate of growth that we care. And, and the rate of growth is significant. And, 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 and so the other thing I wanted to ask is how often do you release a new version of MinIO? Is it on a, a yearly basis? It sounds a little scary. We actually make every week. But our point every week, every week, sometimes even multiple. You do realize this is an enterprise storage podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if as long as it <laughs> so Amazon does it weekly, if not more often. Right. So every one of these other players in the cloud is is is, is developing and incrementally enhancing their solutions all the time. And if our customers are running like the old school enterprise, they are going to lose out to Amazon, right? We have to show that your on-prem storage should be cheaper, easier to run than public cloud. And if I can show that, then I win. And uh, like, we don't have a choice, right? The, the the latest version should be the most stable version. And a software is only stable when there are no more users left, right? So. I've been there, done that. That's not a fun place to be. All right. Well, listen, um, Keith, any, any last questions for AB before we sign off? No, I think uh, I have a bunch of homework to do, starting with the uh, storage field day 2019 uh, episode. This is pretty interesting. I was there. I still didn't learn half of this stuff. Uh, AB, is there anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we sign off? Actually, if there, uh, uh, Jonathan, maybe they can give some useful links to the blog post to you, so they can like uh, later maybe they can if they're interested. But uh, the point is uh, that some of these are actually very like very new for many because it's happening at such a fast pace uh, and uh, it, 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 I actually have seen like many storage experts they are finding these surprises right it's that Oh, God. I'm a storage expert. I'm very surprised. Uh, and there is a lot of confusion in the industry uh, because they, everybody tends to uh, read from sources that are mostly driven by uh, uh, by commercial marketing, right? And yeah, and here, like these kind of pod, podcasts are actually pretty useful for people to get educated. The questions were great because this is not about a, 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 some vendor comparison or vendor survey, right? It's actually, it, you got straight into the heart of these topics that people are curious to learn. Uh, I actually, I enjoyed it. Good, good. Well, well, this has been great. Thank you very much, AB, for being on our show today. Well, thank you for having me. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any question you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. And please review us on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify, as this will get, help get the word out. That's it for now. Bye, Keith. Bye, Ray. And bye, AB. Thanks, Ray.